How's everybody doing? The middle section's really excited. The rest of you are just trying to figure it out. Um, my name is David Ashworth. I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, Corey's on vacation this week. He'll be back next week. So if today's only okay, come back next week. It gets better, I promise. I promise it's okay. So about a month ago, over Memorial Day weekend, um, I introduced, uh, we, Michelle and I have moved to Eagleville, and uh, I introduced everybody to Gary the Groundhog, who now lives on our property. Um, and then over the course of time, we discovered that there was a Gertrude the Groundhog and they had baby Gracie the Groundhog. And ever since that's happened and since, I, since that weekend, I have been pelted with questions of, give us a Gary update. I need a Gary update. So today I, I'm, I'm here and just, just so you notice that all of their names began with the letter G because neither Michelle nor I have the imagination to come up with real names. It's just how that plays out. So last, last time I spoke about a month ago, I told every service about our, our little family of groundhogs. And some of you were like, we need to get rid of them and whatever. And I'm like, no, we've already named them. You can't kill something you name. And uh, so we're driving home after the 11 o'clock service. And I look up at the road right by our driveway and there's a dead animal in the road. And it was either Gary or Gertrude. And so they had been hit by a car. So after Michelle and I mourned our loss, there was a debate that happened because was it Gary or was it Gertrude? And it got pretty, it got pretty personal and we got, we got into, we were going back and forth and I looked at Michelle and I said, you know, if Gertrude crosses the road like you drive, <laughs> it was probably Gertrude. And I knew I was in trouble then because she put her hand on her hip. Men, when your wives respond to you with a hand on the hip, you know you're in trouble. And she looks back and she says, well, it had to be Gary because women are smart enough not to play in the street. <laughs> and so I sat there. I was like, oh, man. So we go to bed and I get up the next morning, come to church. And um, sure enough, as I'm driving out our driveway, I look to the left and I see, I see Mama Mama Gertrude and baby Gracie, and I realized that poor Gary had passed through the pearly gates, compliments of the Michelin man, who looks really nice in the commercials, but dude has a dark side. <laughs> and so if you wanted a Gary update, that's it. And so Michelle gave me this air of confidence, you know, that she was right, and, and Mama, Mama Gertrude was still alive, and, and so that is the update of the, uh, of the Ashworth household. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's near the end of your book. You can also download our app on your phone. If you go to your app store and search for Experience Community, you can follow along there as well. There's notes and there's everything you would need, up and coming events in the church. That's an opportunity. So, so last week, Corey, he gave us five practical ideas as principles of Christian living. And this week, we want to add to that. We want to talk about this idea of what does it mean to be built up in the faith as we go through 1 Timothy chapter 1. And so with that, I'm going to pray real quick, get my, get my mind right, and, and uh, we're, we're going to get started. So let's pray. God, I want to thank you so much for this day. God, I thank you for what you're doing in this church and our lives. God, today, let me just be your servant. God, I don't want to speak for you today. God, I want you to speak through me. Use this time for your glory, God, and we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's introduce ourselves to this letter in the Bible. So in 1 Timothy, before we get into the text, the fact that 1 Timothy exists in your scripture is important. It has its own message just because of its existence. And look, I find the history of letters and the world, world and how it was going on, what was going on at the time, that's really interesting to me. But what I've learned is, is most of you find it boring. But we keep doing this because I'm hoping someday you'll see it my way. But, but with that, I have a map. And I want to zoom out so that you can kind of see where we're at. And, and you, most people recognize Italy's boot there. And above it, you've got France and Germany. And to the far right you've got uh, what's now known as modern Turkey. So as I zoom in, you can still see part of the boot to the left. And then we get to what's going on in the time of the letter right here. So what happens is, is Paul and Timothy, they wander up to Ephesus. And, and at, when they get there, they find out that all of this false teaching and these things are happening in the church. But Paul has a mission Paul has to go to Macedonia. So what he does, as you see in the bottom right, he leaves Timothy in Ephesus, and on his way to Macedonia, he stops in Philippi, where most scholars believe uh, that he wrote this letter. So this first letter to Timothy, it, it's a trio of letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They're commonly known as the pastoral epistles, now, we'll cover First and Second Timothy in church, but I invite you to read Titus. All three of these books go together, and they've guided the church for ages. And, and this book, it was actually written, the, the First Timothy was written after the events recorded in the book of Acts. Most scholars believe around 63 to 65 AD. And, and so let's get our timeline right. If I go back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, Paul is saved. He had, it records his first missionary journey, his second one. And then at the end of Acts, during his third missionary journey, Paul is arrested in Rome and then the book kind of ends. And what we can glean from uh, Paul's letters is what some scholars call this fourth missionary journey. And so we know that he was released when he was arrested the first time and, and he travels for a while. Then he's rearrested again in Rome, which is where he'll lose his life. And, and, and there's a question in this because we look at Timothy because Timothy, he's a native to Lystra. This is modern Turkey. And, and, and Timothy, a lot of people don't know this, but he was from an interracial marriage. His father was Greek and his mother was a, a Jewish Christian. And, and, and it's believed when we look at the book of Acts during Paul's first missionary journey, Timothy came to Christ. And what it's also believed is that during his second visit, Timothy joins Paul into the mission field. So Paul and Timothy, they do life together and they travel to all these places. They travel to Macedonia, Achaia, Ephesus, Corinth, Asia Minor, possibly Jerusalem. And it's recorded that Timothy is, is with Paul during his imprisonment. But there's a lesson for us in this. And I haven't read a word yet of the letter. The fact that it exists, what we understand about 1 Timothy, it's near the end of Paul's life. So from Acts chapter 9 all the way to 1 Timothy, Paul has two letters left after this one. He writes to Titus, then he writes to 2 Timothy, he writes 2 Timothy right before his execution. And we'll talk about that soon. So now the question is, in all that time, where did Paul's Christianity take him? And I'm not talking geography here. 
Paul in and of himself, he had been an example of Christian living for us. And, And the question is, is how did he live this out? And what we learn by reading the New Testament is that he shared the gospel wherever he went. And in the process, he did what Jesus did. At the end of his life, Paul had a number of disciples who assisted him and served him. And here's the thing, this wasn't exclusive to Paul. The other disciples, as they walked out their faith, they made disciples. And the fact that this letter exists is a witness against many of us. So I ask you, as a believer in this room, if that's you, who are you investing your faith in right now? If I ask you that question, does a name come to mind? Because uh, it, it's, it's something that seems foreign to us in modern Christianity. We think it's just the pastor's job. I remember I had a, a talk one day with a friend of mine, and she was, she was older, and she was from up north. She came down for a family visit, and, and, and because she was uh, from a traditional church, and I said, hey, well, you know, what do you do in the church? Because she's a devout believer, and she says, well, um, I, when I go to my church, she told me this. She says, when, when it comes time to cook food, they ask me, you know, if I'll, I'll cook and, and I will go cook. And then we have days where I can I go and clean the church and, and I can do that. And I was like, is that all you want to do in the church? And she goes, no, but that's really all that they have for me to do. And I said, I, I got to ask you something. And I don't mean to be rude when I ask it. Is this service or sexism? What is this? And she had, had been a believer for many years. And I looked at her and she just wanting to do more for God. I said, look, you don't have to go to your church and start a ministry. Find one young woman in your church. Take her out to coffee and talk about Jesus. Pour into her what God has poured into you. I looked at her and I was like, you have so many God stories. You have so much good advice, godly wisdom. And you can pour that into someone else. And man, when we were talking, she, she teared up. And she looked at me and she said, I was under the impression that I was, I was no use of God, no use for God at my age. And I, my heart broke for her. My heart broke for her. So this lesson, uh, this First Timothy letter, here's some lessons in it. First and foremost, It doesn't matter whether it's an official ministry or not, but first and foremost, be a Paul. Whatever God has done in you, invest in your faith enough so that you can pour into someone else. The second one is harder because especially for us guys, it's going to require us to humble ourselves and find someone in our life who who looks like they have a better walk with Jesus than us and say, you know what? I I notice there's things that you're doing that I I really want want to grow in. Ladies, that there, there, there are other women of faith that you say, I want, to, I want what you have. Paul says it this way. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we look for people to imitate who are living out the faith well. Are we willing to humble ourselves and be a Timothy? And, and then the third one, the third one is this. Write your own letter. Write your own letter. I was radically... Um, I was radically on fire for God in 2004. And by 2005, man, I was just into it. Both of my sons were young and I realized at that time, it's like, I wanted them to know what I believed. This is just a corporation book, it was empty. 
And I started taking it to church. And it didn't take me any more time. As the pastor spoke, if there were things that resonated with me, I, I wrote stuff down for my sons. And at the front of this, again, I wrote this in 2005. It says, to my sons, Austin and Briggs, I love you, dad. And I just wanted to read one entry to you. This is from, uh, this is from uh, July of 2006. And, and this one entry in, in the middle of a sermon, I wrote this and I said, my sons, endure in your life for Jesus Christ. He loves you. And his love, he has made me even more able to love you. There is no greater love than the love you'll experience with God. And this book is filled with messages and letters to my sons. Because you see, a day's gonna come when I'm not here that my life is gonna be done. And all they're gonna have left is something like this so that they know what their dad believed. You don't have to be a parent to do this. You just have to have somebody you love in your life that you want them to know the extent of your faith. And that day will be sad, but I will be glad to hand them when they, they settle down in life, this book, and they'll know what their dad believed and why. Because I love my kids and I want them to know Jesus. I want them to know Jesus. That's the message of 1 Timothy before we read a single letter. All right, before I tear up, let's get in the text. <laughs> First Timothy chapter one, I'm gonna read verses one through 11. It says this, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So let's get into the text. Paul's greeting in Timothy, it's actually unique from any of his other letters. If you go look at Romans, if you go look at Ephesians, within the first three verses, you'll see grace and peace. But for some reason why, scholars believe for a number of reasons that he adds the word mercy. Because Timothy is so close to him, he extends an extra measure of grace. And in this ministry situation that he's left Timothy in. And this greeting from Paul, grace and peace, it, it's a unifying greeting. Because for the Jews, how they would greet people is they would say shalom. They would say peace. 
But now this word grace, it was a modification of a Greek greeting. And so Paul would always say grace and peace because the point was that every race on the planet is invited into the kingdom of God. And he would include all of it. And it was so important in his life because now Paul calls Timothy a true son of the faith. If you remember what I said in the beginning in the introduction, Timothy was of a mixed race. And with Judaism, he would not have been accepted as a true Jew. But what Paul says here, you are a true son in the faith. So Paul confirms it by faith that there's no room for racism in the kingdom of God. Amen and amen. Look, a genealogy will never validate a person's faith. And, and so Paul talks about genealogies here. Uh, genealogies, I'm not saying that with a country accent. But genealogies, he talks about it for a reason. Because remember in the letters of, of John that we talked about the Gnostics. And more than likely, they were dealing with Gnosticism too. And what the Gnostics would do is they would take the leader of their movement and they would make a genealogy from their leader all the way back to Jesus. And they said, we have the right bloodline. We actually are the ones with the answers. But Paul says this is by faith. So Timothy's dealing with this false doctrine and Paul's left him to contend with this. Look, the greatest attack on the gospel, it always happens when people attempt to add something to it. Please hear me on this. What you believe must be correct before your actions will be. Look, if knowledge informs you, but belief transforms you, what you pour into your heart is gonna have a dramatic impact of what comes out of your life. And I remember I, I, when I was in my 20s, I was a computer programmer and I was working for this lady and she was also a believer and she's about 20 or so years older than me. And so I was building some web pages for her and we would talk about God sometimes. And she had met this guy and they had started dating and they dated for uh, about two weeks or so. And then, then she told me the next week I saw her that they had spent the weekend together in her apartment. And since we've been talking about God so much, I said, I just want to ask you, I said, did you keep your boundaries? You know, to, to do something like that, could you keep your boundaries? And, and, and I'll never forget what she said. She looked back at me and she says, well, when the Bible says to wait to do that until you're married, what I think it means is that you wait until you love someone. And she paused and she looked at me and she says, and I really love this guy. And I was like, okay, so you've been dating for two weeks and it takes two weeks to learn how much you just truly love somebody to the core and full of who they are. This is a quite convenient change. And it's not what the gospel says. And we talked about it, but it was, it was tough. But look, we are tempted when the gospel doesn't advocate for the life that we want to live. What we end up doing is we want to change it just a little bit so that we can have the life that we desire. False doctrine is the great lie. It's when a person tries to spiritually validate something they want, even if it's the furthest thing from God's mind. And please hear me on this one. There is a connection between our doctrine and who we live for. Please hear, you can be incredibly religious. You can be incredibly religious and you can still be incredibly selfish if you're the object of your religion. 
If I imagine that the whole goal of my Christian walk is that God is here for me, that God is, is here to answer my prayers and God is here to do what I want him to do and, and, and God is here for my career and God is okay with my sin, who's the object of my religion? Me. But that's not the real gospel. If we are not careful, we will be the objects of what we believe. But Paul, in contrast to this, he says the goal of the gospel is love, and he gives us three attributes here. And these are worth breaking down. First and foremost, he talks about having a pure heart, being pure in heart. What does that mean? It means a heart that has a singular focus only on God, not God in my sin and not God in, in, in my career that he doesn't want me to do and, and not God in the life that I, I, I think that I want to live. A singular heart completely focused on God. David says this way, says it this way in the Psalms. He says, he says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. A pure heart does something within us. Secondly, a good conscience, the satisfaction in our conduct amongst the church. Now in Ephesus, the word conscience, it meant something different. It had more of a group meaning, not as much an individual meaning. There was a rest that you were following the group of people who were committed to the gospel and that you were in line with the gospel and these people were affirming it in your life. This conscience is what they talked about during the time. And then finally, this idea of a sincere faith. And again, there, there's this unity that happens with a sincere faith. It's your inner belief and your outward actions actually line up. So the person you are on Sunday is the same person you are Monday through Saturday. And so the thing is that this, this inner person, this person that, with belief that loves God, that, that same love is shown from your life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and you overflow with it when you show up here. It's a sincere faith. But look, Jeremiah prophesies when he talks about the new covenant, and he says this. He says, I will give them singleness of heart and action. Church, that's the very definition of faith. It's the very definition of faith is when your belief and your actions line up. So these false teachers in their teaching, they were wandering away from the pure law of love. They wanted to be the ones that say, well, we are the ones that actually possess the truth. And so they, they made up this, this slightly modified belief for prideful reasons. They wanted people to follow them. But we've got to understand this. This is a man focus. Man-made religion is a poor substitute for living out the love of God for living out the law of love. So people try to make their own religion out of Christianity. And it's just a feeble attempt for us to live for ourselves. And, and I, I just tell you, we're not fooling God. He knows. So then Paul declares that the, the law is for the godless, not the righteous. And why does he say this? It's not that, that Christians are exempt from the law, but if the Christians are following the Holy Spirit and he's leading their lives, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to sin. He will lead you away from sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But those who are outside of the faith, these 10 commandments were guidelines. And the 10 commandments, they were, they were this metric as to how we were supposed to live. And, and, and the law... It can never be salvation because people can't save themselves. 
We cannot save themselves. The best way it's ever been described to me is the law is a mirror. And so what happens is, as we look up and we look into the mirror and we see all the things that we've done wrong, we see what's wrong with us. We see, our, we see our sins, we see our shortcomings. We see this time where we put something else in front of God instead of putting God first in our lives. And the mirror looks back at us and says, you need a savior. You need Jesus. And it's why the law could never save. It points us to the son who did save. And in our lives, what happens is we take on Jesus' salvation and we're led by the Holy Spirit. And so in this, this is where we get to the hairy part. Paul lists all of these sins that are tied to the Ten Commandments, and we'll run through them quickly. Uh, the right is the reference, right of the screen is the reference to the Ten Commandments. But he talks about those who kill their parents. He talks about murderers. He talks about slave traders are tied to do not steal because these people were stealing people. They were stealing other people and putting them into slavery. They were stealing people that were made in the image of God. To Paul, this was a horrendous sin. He talks about liars and perjurers, and now he talks about all sexual sin. Now look, I know the word homosexual is used here, and I want to address this, because some opportunistic preachers would pick one people group and go on a soapbox against them. But I find it really hypocritical when the word sexual immorality is listed right beside it, but we'll ignore that. The Bible, the Bible has never picked a specific people group to be against. The Bible talks about what God is for. And God is clear that sexuality is very specific and it has a specific purpose in our lives. It's mentioned in Genesis. It's mentioned in the gospels. Paul repeats it in his letters. And no matter what our view is on sexuality, God says there's one context in his marriage. That's it. It's what sex is specifically for, regardless of our desires outside of marriage. Let me ask you something. Do you know that we have made an idol out of sexuality in our country? Do you know that we have? It's in our music. It's in our movies. It's on the internet. It's a $6 billion a year industry at a minimum. They can't really track it because it's so unregulated. They can't actually get a real figure. It's on our television. I remember when I was a kid that that, that wasn't the, the stuff we look at today wasn't even permitted. You could be fined for the things that we look at today. It's the idol of choice for Americans. But let me ask you another question. Do you know it is not the biggest thing that you are called to live for? It is not the biggest thing you are called to live for. If I were to pass away tonight, and on my tombstone tomorrow they write, here lies David Ashworth heterosexual. I probably would have failed in life because God had something so much bigger for me to live for. Even non-Christians understand this somewhat, but since sexuality is our idol, we will fill our lives with it. And it's become our most sensitive topic because we've made it the most important. And it's not. The biggest issue in this area besides pornography, you know what the biggest issue is in the church? It's actually couples living together before they're married. And, and, and the thing is, and I say this to you not to be a jerk. It's been happening for a while. I want you to know the statistics. These are not Christian statistics. These are statistics. 
If you live together before you're married, you've got a 50% chance of making it to the altar. And if you make it to the altar, you're five times more likely to divorce than someone who doesn't live together before they're married. Dave Ramsey, in his program, he says this. He says, you have a 20% chance of making it. And I would rather you hate my guts and know the truth than, than me to stand up here and pretend like it's okay. But here's what I've learned in talking with couples. I think the two biggest issues in this is commitment and intimacy. And the order of these two are important because what we're doing is we're flipping them around today. We're putting intimacy first, so we're moving in together. We're being intimate together. There's no real commitment because if you were to break up, someone else could move in the next month. But say you're the 50% that make it and you're intimate together. The wedding day happens. What logistically changes after the wedding day? Nothing. You just go back home. Intimacy before commitment cheapens commitment. Now, put them in the right order. Put them in the right order. Put commitment first. Now, imagine men that you honor her before you touch her. Imagine that you sacrifice for her. You want to know what her hopes are. You want to know what her dreams are. Ladies, imagine what happens when he stays with you, not primarily because of your physical nature, but he stays with you because of your heart, because of your love for God. He stays with you because he wants to know your favorite salad dressing. He wants to know your favorite movie. He wants to know everything about you. And so commitment comes first, then the wedding day happens, and then there's intimacy. What happens when it's in the right order? Commitment before intimacy actually adds value to intimacy. And couples begin in a brand new light. And I'm not saying this because I want you to feel bad about yourselves. I just don't want you to have a 20% chance to make it. And I love you enough to tell you the truth. I want you to make it. So hear the heart of this church. No matter what your physical struggles are, no matter what it is, whether you live together or not, or whether it's some other struggle, our heart is we're glad that you're here. And what we want to do is we want to walk through the mess with you. We want to read God's word together. And if we can agree on what it says, let's do it. We're, let's be done playing Christian games. Let's just change the word a little bit. Let's just do what he says. Let's just do what he says. And that's a heart of love and truth put together. And it's the greatest message I could possibly offer you. I'm not going to be a legalist and I'm not going to be liberal with the truth. I would rather offer you truth and love and we walk through that together. And this is why any teaching must be aligned with the gospel. The gospel was passed down to Paul. He gives it to Timothy and through the generations. It's now passed down to us. And for the gospel to be evident in our lives, for it to be evident in our lives, we must read this book. And then what happens is after we read this book and we start to, to live the gospel, we live this out and we become witnesses to the power of what it will do in your life. We, we become witnesses to its power. Imagine if you woke up every day with understanding the burden of what this is. 
that you were handed a Bible by someone or you purchased a Bible. And the reason why that you could is that the generation of Christians that came before you, they understood that they were entrusted with this and they wanted to make sure that it got into your hands. They wanted to make sure this got into your hands. So now this is not just decoration for your home. This is something you read that you know that you live so that you now pass this on to your children, to, to people around you. To be entrusted with something makes us responsible for something. And if God has placed this in your hands, understand the responsibility that you've been given if you believe. He's got something more for you to do. That's why this book is in your hands. It is evidence of his, his love and his will for your life. So let me ask you, how much does this word play a part of your life? Do you understand that it's been entrusted to you? Please don't live out your Christian life understanding the responsibility of possessing this word. Okay, last part, verse 12. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus, might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So this last part, Paul's testimony here is surprising probably to the false teachers. They were boasting in their lineage. They were boasting in, in, their, in what they knew. And Paul says, I'm actually the worst of sinners. And, and so he almost does something unexpected to them in how he describes his life. And understand this for us, Paul's living in light of the depth of his sin. He remembers everything he did, that he killed followers of Jesus. And he says, I was the worst, but God's grace is so powerful, I no longer have shame. I now rejoice because of how powerful grace is in my life. Now, let me ask you something. When we look at this, if I forget my sin, if I forget what it is that I've done, what do I do to grace? Now look, I'm, I'm not saying this to you so that you would feel guilty. In fact, grace, it says it turns mourning into dancing, that God would do such a thing. So what happens is, is this, is when we look back on the depth of our sin, rather than feeling the guilt of it, we now rejoice because it shows us how great the grace of God is and how great the love of God is in our lives. If I forget the depth of sin, I lose the significance of grace. If I think I'm just a good person and God just added a little bit of goodness to my life and he went, boop, 
Now I'm better. What did I do to grace? I made it small. In our minds, the enemies of the significance of grace is self-righteousness. The enemies of the significance of grace in our minds is self-righteousness. Because if I think I'm almost there and God just has to do a little bit more in my life to make me what I need to be, I have made grace small. Remember your sin, not for the sake of guilt, but for the understanding how much God loves you. Hold on to that. Because not only was Paul redeemed by the grace of God, he was called by it as well. There's not a believer in this room today who isn't called, but often, especially in modern Christianity, we live like we're not called. And in this process, grace not only saves you, it changes you, and to experience that change, you experience the most, it the most in your calling. So Timothy what we learn about him is that someone else's calling has impacted his life. He's, he's called through spiritual gifts. Someone with the gift of prophecy speaks over Timothy's life and tells Timothy what he's gonna do for God. And so at the same time, Paul now lists two other people who have shipwrecked their faith. They've abandoned both the true faith and real community for what they wanted. So Paul says that they have to be turned over to Satan. And, and, and what the hope is, is that if they were cast out into a dark world because they wouldn't relent, that they were, they were stubborn and they were teaching falseness, Paul at the same time, he recommends that you preserve the truth in the church. And for those who will not, who will not let go of the lie that, that there's these rare cases, and I mean rare, it's so rare that Paul lists them by name when they happen that someone gets cast out so that they would see the darkness of the world and have a desire to return to the light. The goal is restoration. Now, some legalistic churches have taken this too far and they're, they're just kicking everybody out of church if they have sin in their life. I've heard horrible stories of single mothers who, who have dealt with some things in their life and rather than helping them, they just kick them out. And they come here and they realize how much we love people. And it's not just this church. There's many churches today that do this that love people the right way, but in the churches I grew up in, sometimes you would do one thing wrong and they would send you out, but that's not what this passage is saying. So let's bring this together. Are we investing in sons and daughters of the faith? I'm not just talking about young people. I'm talking about new people in the faith. Maybe even people who don't believe that we're willing to talk to them about Jesus. Are we investing in them? It's gonna require us to know the Bible, to live this out so that we can pour it into someone else. Because if our faith is not about God and it's not about others, if faith stops with me, I'm the dead end. I'm actually called to give it to someone else. That's what you are called to do, to give it to someone else, to pass this along in your life. And then the harder one, are we willing to humble ourselves? Who are you listening to the most in your life these days? Who are you allowing to define who you are? Who are, are you allowing to define what's okay and what's not okay in your life? Going back to Paul's three attributes, are we living out this pure heart with a singular focus on Jesus? This good conscience following the word and following the church that follows the word. And then are we living out this genuine faith? 
whose actions reflect the inner person, that our actions and our heart line up? Is that the faith that we're living out? Because the question is, what are you being built up in? Are you being built up in the faith? And you see, in talking with people, I've learned some things. And the best way I've learned how to put this is this. Each and every one of us have a well. It's symbolic, but there's a well in front of us. And wherever we go, this well goes with us. Everybody around us can see it. And in this outer well in our lives that they pour into it, they say, you know, you're really not that great of a person. And they take some toxin and they pour into your well. Your parents say you're not, you'll never amount to anything. And they pour this toxin into your well. You may have been dating someone, you broke up and they, and they explained to you why you were not good enough. And they pour their toxin into your well. Couples, what happens is I deal with this in counseling and, and how they deal with conflict. One will break down and say, well, let me tell you what I think of you. You're just a sorry whatever. And they pour that into the well. And what the other person does in the relationship, they reach their hand out and they dip into the well and they drink the toxin. And they say, well, if that's what you think of me, let me tell you what I think of you. And then they argue poorly in their relationship. But if you're a believer in this room, what I understand is that there is a second well. It's within here. God pours into this well. He says, you're fearfully and you're wonderfully made. He says, you're a child of the king. He says, if you confess your sins and repent, you're forgiven and I forgive you. You might not think you're loved, but I love you. For God so loved the world. That means you. You're loved. He pours again. He says, you have something bigger than yourself to live for in your life. And he pours. Ephesians 2.10 says this, that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. You have a purpose. There's a reason for you to be alive. And he pours into this well. And now when someone responds negatively, when they pour in this outer well, I just don't like the da-da-da-da-da rather than reaching out into the outer well, you now reach inward. And you say, I know God loves me. It looks like you're mad at me. Can we talk? I know God wants to restore this relationship. Let's have a conversation. You look at people differently when you draw from this well. You live differently when you draw from this inner well. But here's the hard part. Christians do this a lot. And I experience this when I talk to people alone. What they do is they reach into this outer well and they pour inward and they corrupt what God's doing in you. You know how I can, you know how I can tell? They'll look at me and they'll say, you know what? I don't know how God could love me. Has he seen the things I've done? My parents said I was worthless and I think, he, I think they were right. How could God ever see anything in me? Many of us have, have walked around with tainted wells. With tainted wells. James adds to the conversation. He says this. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, is to look after orphans and widows and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I go, Wow. Proverbs contributes to the conversation. I bet some of you know this. Above all else, guard your, your heart. What does it say next? 
for it's the wellspring of life. Many of us have tried to build up our Christian faith with corrupted wells. And it's not what God has ever intended for us. Do you know how to clean a well? Or, or, or say a cup. What you do is you, you take scalding hot water and you take the cup and you let the clean water run through it so much that all the impurities come out and all you're left with is what is clean. And some of us in this room, you have walked with a tainted well for so long and you don't know why your faith doesn't always make sense as to how you see yourself. You bow your heads with me. The only way for us to be built up in our faith is to listen to the one and live for the one who builds us up, him and him alone. Do you know that you have an enemy of your soul? Do you know that Satan is a real being and he wants nothing but your end? He wants nothing but for you to be destroyed. But here's the secret. Here's what Satan knows. He cannot destroy you. He can't. He can only convince you to destroy yourself. He can only convince you to destroy yourself. What I pray today for you is a cleansing. If you're with somebody you trust, pray with that person. To my left and right, there are people that will pray with you. Let today be a new beginning. Let's run the living water of the Holy Spirit through our lives. Let him cleanse us. Let God make us whole. We don't build ourselves up in the faith. God builds us up. And we live from this. Around us is communion. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, if you ask God to forgive you of your sins and you repent of them and you have this moment with God right now, partake of communion. You're welcome. And finally, if you're new to all this and you've got some questions, to the right of the stage is Greg. He's one of the pastors here and, and he'll do his best to answer your questions. He knows a lot. And if he doesn't have the answer, he'll get the answer. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Let us be built up in the faith. Let us pass it on to someone else in our life. Lord, let us write our letter. Let, let your name be known to the next generation. We love and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much.